Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 9th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. On Tuesday, the California Supreme Court heard argument over whether criminal defendants have a pretrial right to subpoena potentially exculpatory social media records held by platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Those entities contend that a 1986 law, the Federal Stored Communications Act, expressly prohibits them from sharing the sort of information sought by here two defendants in an alleged gang-related homicide who subpoenaed relevant online communications and posts of the crime's victim and the prosecution's key witness, seeking information with which to build a cohesive defense. In the criminal law context, an exception to that federal law provides prosecutors with a warrant access to the kind of social media records at issue here, but no exception grants similar access to criminal defendants, at least during pretrial discovery. A First District Court of Appeal panel articulated something of a compromise holding that during trial, constitutional guarantees of due process and a fair trial might, notwithstanding the federal law, secure a defendant the ability to successfully subpoena social media records. But our guest today, former Monterey County Assistant Public Defender Don Landis, argues that those constitutional protections are no weaker at the pretrial stage and that delaying defendants' access to relevant social media records until trial results in significant administrative, strategic, and constitutional problems. Of course, on the other side, social media companies involved in the case also argue there's no meaningful distinction to be drawn between pretrial and trial contexts. In their view, the Stored Communication Act prohibits such disclosures at any stage of criminal litigation. It's obviously a case with only growing implications as social media information continues to comprise a larger share of evidence introduced by both sides at criminal trials. Don will give us his take on these sides' competing contentions and thoughts on what Tuesday's arguments might tell us about where the state high court intends to take this case. But first, let's get to our opening briefs. Of a batch of other California Supreme Court arguments this week, a couple of note stand out. One, a free speech challenge asking whether the California Table Grape Commission, a statutory body charged with supporting the staple crop through regulation, research, and marketing, can compel individual grape growers to fund the commission's advertising. And in a long-standing Prop 47 criminal appeal, the justices heard argument over whether the ballot measure allowing petitioners to reduce felony convictions to misdemeanors also allows those petitioners to reduce sentencing enhancements or subsequent sentences that rest on felony convictions that an individual has successfully reduced to misdemeanors. And a couple of rulings from the Ninth Circuit bear mentioning, one down Thursday, strengthens the standing rights of victims of online data breaches whose hacked information has yet to be used to their detriment. Earlier circuit precedent held that the real and immediate threat of harm posed by stolen personal data was enough to support standing, and the panel reaffirmed that rule. Notwithstanding a 2013 Supreme Court decision, the online retailer argued requires some actual harm to support standing. On Wednesday, another panel greenlit a challenge brought by a group of young plaintiffs who claim the U.S. government has contributed to climate change in violation of the plaintiff's constitutional rights. The suit survived a motion to dismiss an Oregon district court, and that ruling was challenged by the government in a petition for a writ of mandamus. But the high bar required for such extraordinary appellate relief and the fact that the lower court's ruling was not clearly erroneous as a matter of law, in part because this novel type of suit has yet to create much precedential law against which to judge, persuaded a unanimous panel here to allow the suit to continue into the next stage of litigation. And a ruling out of the California Supreme Court Monday settled a long-simmering dispute between 
a dissolved law firm and its former members that moved on to other firms and brought their cases with them. A unanimous court found that applying property law principles cases, if those billed on an hourly basis, belong to clients and that therefore a dissolved firm has no property interest in those matters and no right to seek portions of the remuneration earned by former partners working on those cases at their new firms. Steve Hirsch is of counsel with Kecker and Van Nest and helped defend Davis Wright Tremaine, one of the defendant firms in the case that prevailed Monday. He joins us now. Steve, congratulations and welcome to the show. Could you tell me a, a bit about this suit's origins, the, the question it sought to answer, and about the decision Monday from the High Court? Okay, so I will take you back to the beginning of time, but to 1984, <laughs> sure. at which time a, a California intermediate court issued an opinion called Jewel versus Boxer. And Jewel was about what happens when a little law firm breaks up and its partners go in different directions. What do you do if that firm had been working on a contingency fee case and that case goes with some of the partners to a new firm? What do the other partners get out of it uh, when the when the ship comes in mm-hmm. and the case pays off? And the California Court of Appeals said, well, the best thing would be that if the other partners got a quantum merit recovery, which means more or less an equitable estimation of the value of the work that they actually put into it, and they get that, and then the partners who brought the case to completion can, can keep the rest. Unfortunately, the court said, we can't, we can't go for that answer because the Uniform Partnership Act has a provision in it that says that partners are not entitled to get extra compensation for winding up the affairs of a dissolved partnership. And so for the other partners to sort of keep everything, that would be extra compensation. And for and for a quantum merit award, I suppose, that would be extra compensation. Can't do that. So what are we going to do? So they decided what we're going to do is Instead of getting extra compensation, you'll get exactly, everybody will get exactly what they would have gotten if the firm had stayed together and they were still practicing. So if you own 25% of the firm as a partner, you'll get 25% of the recovery like that. As time went on, there were a number of very large law firm bankruptcies. And one of them was the Brobeck bankruptcy. Mm. And this all became a big issue in the Brobeck bankruptcy. Because one of the aspects of Jewel was that the court said, this is a background rule. If you think it's unfair, you don't like it, you can contract around it. You can put in your partnership agreement some other rule for determining how the money will be divided. So firms started doing that. Sometimes, unfortunately, they only started doing it, in fact, usually, after they knew they were in trouble. Now, there's a rule in bankruptcy that if you start conveying assets of the firm away within X months before you declare bankruptcy, the conveyance is considered fraudulent. There's some more ins and outs to that, but it's called a constructively fraudulent conveyance. And basically, the idea is it's presumed that you're trying to cheat your creditors by conveying assets out of the firm before it goes under and become subject to bankruptcy creditor claims. You know, you're giving the stuff away to your buddies or whatever. So when these firms started going bankrupt, 
a clever bankruptcy trustee, I believe it was Chris Sullivan, the same trustee as in this case, came up with the idea that if within X months before the bankruptcy, the partners got together and they said, you know, we're heading toward a cliff here. We don't like this jewel rule. We're going to waive it. We're going to all agree not to invoke it. All right. So that the firm will have no claim on the cases that go away with us to new firms. The, the bankruptcy trustee said that is a constructively fraudulent conveyance. Hmm. And you can't do it. So this transformed a rule that you were supposed to be able to contract around into a rule that you cannot get out of if you waived it within, you know, two years before a bankruptcy. And this then gave the bankruptcy trustee the right to go after the cases that had gone to new law firms and claim that as part of winding up the, the old law firm, you're owed money under the jewel rule. So this kind of claim depended on two things, a case or more, more than one case possibly that was at the old firm when it dissolved goes to a new firm and is being serviced there. And in addition, at least one partner from the old firm goes to that firm. Those are the sort of dual conditions for this whole thing to arise. And I'm going to call this development the Brobeck Doctrine. Mm. And what happened was the chief bankruptcy judge of the Northern District of California liked this doctrine, and he adopted it. And once he had adopted it, it became kind of a cottage industry among the bankruptcy trustees in law firm collapses. So a bunch of these, what are called adversary actions, were filed by bankruptcy trustees in law firm bankruptcies. And for the most part, the defendants in those adversary actions capitulated and settled. What happened in this case with the Heller-Ehrman bankruptcy that was different was that four firms decided enough is enough, and they didn't settle. And they started fighting it from the bankruptcy court all the way up. It was the same bankruptcy judge as the one in the Brobeck case, the chief bankruptcy judge of, uh, judge of the Northern District of California. And he was quite wedded to his theory. And eventually, um, this ended up, you know, bankruptcy appeals go first to a district court judge, and it went to Judge Breyer. And before Judge Breyer, we, uh, the various firms, argued that summary judgment should be granted in this adversary action because for a fraudulent conveyance to occur, the thing that's fraudulently conveyed has to be property as defined under state law. Mm. And we argued that under state law, uh, the mere expectation of continuing business from a law firm client was not property and it couldn't possibly be conveyed uh, fraudulently. Now, one big issue was that in every case but one where the California courts applied the jewel rule, it concerned a contingency fee. Right. And in the context of a contingency fee, it made some sense, sort of, a great sense, but some sense, because when a firm takes on a contingent case, all the partners essentially make an investment in that case. 
they give up money that they could have made by charging hourly fees on some other case. And instead, they get nothing for a long time on the, on the gamble, essentially, that the case may pay off and they'll all get a big payday. So if you've made that investment and then the firm breaks up, your investment is stranded in the case. And you're going to feel kind of ripped off if you don't get something in the end. An hourly fee matter case, which is the kind, you know, that predominates in large law and the kinds of large law firms that are the subject of these bankruptcies, um, you're paid off every month by the client. The client gets a monthly bill. The client pays the bill. Nothing is out there that's unpaid. And so one of the problems with the Brobeck doctrine was that it extended the Jewell doctrine to hourly matters. And it did so on the strength of exactly one case, which was called Rothman versus Dolan, a very short, ill-considered, not very well-reasoned, intermediate court case from California that said it's the same rule for hourly cases. So that's all the authority there was to that. So before Judge Breyer, he held that the rule didn't extend to hourly cases and that the idea that a client is going to keep hiring you to do hourly work on a case is just an expectation. It's not property under California state law. And he granted summary judgment and it went to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit wrote a very nice opinion. It has a lot of great background in it. And it held, though, that there wasn't any California law straight on point to decide the property issue. You know, in federal bankruptcy law, property is defined under by state law rules. And California law applied because Heller had a choice of law clause in its partnership agreement saying that it was governed by California law. And the Ninth Circuit said the, the decisions that are out there, including Rothman versus Dolan, weren't on point. First, because they involved contingency fees. And second, because they had been decided before California switched from the Uniform Partnership Act to the revised Uniform Partnership Act. Mm -hmm. And you'll remember that in the Jewell decision, they said, we can't grant a, a logical quantum Merowith award because the UPA doesn't permit extra compensation. Well, in the revised UPA that was passed in the 1990s, I think, there was an express provision allowing extra compensation. And there were a couple of other provisions that the California Supreme Court pointed to as making a significant difference. So the Ninth Circuit said, there's no California law on point. Help us, California Supreme Court. And it certified the question over to the California Supreme Court. And the California Supreme Court took the case and answered the question. And what it held was, I mean, essentially agreed with Judge Breyer that the mere expectation that a client will continue to use your services is speculative, it's not property, um, and therefore defunct law firm has no property interest in hourly matters that a client has transferred from that firm, which can't do anything anymore, to a new firm that can. I'm cognizant that we have uh, some judge listeners, so hopefully uh, the author of that intermediate appellate uh, opinion's not not presently tuned in. Um, I, I was wondering too why it, it 
wasn't until now that this question was resolved. It seems a pretty important one when partnerships are dissolving and trying to wind up and figure out who owes who what. Um, I imagine these fights would have come up before. How come it took us until now to figure out who uh, is in possession, who owns the property rights to these cases? Well, a couple things had to happen before it could get resolved. One is you had to find law firms with the fortitude to resist the claims, and not every firm has that fortitude. Firms don't like being sued. Not good uh, branding. (laughs) And in addition, once you found those firms, it takes a long time for the issues to bubble up through many layers of courts. And this started in a bankruptcy court. It went on appeal to a district court, federal district court. It went to the Ninth Circuit. It was certified over to the California Supreme Court. Now the certified question has been referred back to the Ninth Circuit, um, which will undoubtedly uh, issue some further opinion, applying the learning from the California Supreme Court's decision to uh, the ultimate bankruptcy case. So all of that takes a lot of time. I've been involved in this case for quite a number of years at this point. Um, The first such opinion uh, occurred in New York, and the New York Court of Appeals decided the same way, that, that the property interest posited by this whole theory doesn't exist. You, you principally covered the legal reasoning applied by the California Supreme Court here on Monday. I know, or I noticed in reading the opinion that a few different policy concerns also seem to be on the uh, the court's mind. Uh, how does this ruling positively affect the the sorts of policy implications that that surround you know, firm dissolution and and, new, and attorney movement and client control over matters and, and that sort of thing? Right. So. It has great implications for client choice of counsel. Um, If your case is being handled by a lawyer that you like a lot, think it's doing a good job, and that lawyer's firm dissolves uh, under the Brobeck Doctrine, um, you had some difficult choices to make because assuming that that lawyer could find a new home, presumably that that lawyer would be working on uh, various different cases. But your case, would be a singularly unprofitable one uh, because a a great deal of the revenues would be streamed back to the old defunct bankrupt firm. So you would have to ask yourself as a client, um, is my case going to get the kind of support from the firm and from the partner I was working with that it deserves? If you pay a lot of money for a lawyer, part of the reason you pay that money is to get good service um, and attention from the lawyer and the firm. And if that, if that matter is essentially unprofitable or being litigated, you know, at a bargain basement, effectively a bargain basement rate, you have to wonder, should I stay with this lawyer even though I like what she's doing? Or do I need to find myself a, a new home for this case? So that's, the client side, there's also things about the legal profession that are important here. Uh, namely, the Brobeck, under the Brobeck Doctrine, the case only became encumbered by these kinds of bankruptcy trustee claims if it was pending at the firm on the date that it dissolved. So, as a fir- you know, firms don't just collapse overnight. Usually there's a good bit of warning. And um, 
an attorney or, or a partner uh, might well look at the situation and say, I need to leave now and I will, you know, you, sure. you, you can't, you can't ethically ask the client whether the business will follow you until after you have actually left. Mm-hmm. But the issue now is, do I, do I leave now or do I wait until after the firm has dissolved or do I wait to see whether maybe dissolution can be forestalled by good management reforms of some kind? Mm-hmm. So if you know that a lot of the business is going to become encumbered by these terrible claims, uh, if you wait, you might just rush for the exits. Mm-hmm. And if a lot of people do that, um, this could hasten the dissolution of an otherwise salvageable law firm. And that kind of instability is obviously not good for the legal industry or for lawyers and not good for clients either. Okay, maybe so just uh, one one last one. Um, the, this question was squarely enough in the confines of sort of state jurisprudence that the Ninth Circuit did kick it over to the California Supreme Court. Do you think it's pretty safe to assume then that uh, now that the case has been returned to the uh, the Ninth Circuit, they'll they'll follow the, the guidance provided by the state high court? Yes. I think it's a pretty. I think it's as certain as anything could be. It's it's also what happened in the New York case, when the New York Court of Appeals uh, weighed in on certification, and the Second Circuit took that opinion and very, made very short work of the case after receiving it. Okay, great. Then we can leave it there for now. Uh, Steve Hirsch of Counsel with Kecker and Van Nest in San Francisco. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. After arguments Tuesday, the state Supreme Court will now debate whether criminal defendants have the right to subpoena relevant social media records as they build their case pre-trial. Don Landis of the law offices of Don Landis in Carmel, and formerly the Monterey County Assistant Public Defender, has long fought for such a right. One of growing importance is social media information makes up an increasingly greater share of evidence introduced at criminal trials. He submitted an amicus brief supporting the original defendants in the matter considered by the High Court Tuesday and joins us now. Don, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, so this case is uh, Facebook versus Superior Court. A couple of real parties in interest, Derek Hunter and Lee Sullivan, has argued before the uh, Supreme Court in California on Tuesday. Um, it centers around the question of the, the ability or, or the right for criminal defendants to pre-trial uh, access information and records from, from social media sites, uh, the sorts of information that could, could aid a defendant to, in building his or her case, that a question seems like it's only gaining salience as over the past 10 or 15 years, social media sites have really become pretty ubiquitous, something worth um, deciding here. Now, it's also coming to the fore now, but it's a fight that you've been involved with for, I think, as you mentioned to me before we started recording, going on on a decade or so. Could you tell me a bit about kind of why you chose to put your shoulder to to this wheel and, and how, I guess, the 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 fight has been going for the past 10 years. So uh, way back in the day, I was actually a trial attorney. And um, as I was uh, interested in this Icelandic band called Sigaras, I wanted to check up on them on the, this new thing called the internet. And someone told me that they have a, a band, a 
of space on MySpace, and I had no idea what MySpace was. And so then I got onto MySpace to check out my favorite Icelandic band, and what I realized was it was a it was a community of uh, young kids on there saying very graphic things and posting very graphic pictures in very real terms, and I was realizing how what a tremendous um, source of information this would be if it was ever an issue in the trial courts. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I had a client who was charged with the rape of a 15-year-old girl, and the presentation of the girl by the mother was that she was a, never had any experiences and uh, was an innocent young girl. And um, I had a young, good-looking male law clerk at the time, and he said, give me five minutes. And so he came back, and he came back with all these pictures and all these postings that she made. And she was not the young, innocent girl that her mother thought. And in fact, she was the exact opposite, foul-mouthed and, and profane and and very suggestive of photographs. And I asked, well, where is that? And he said, it's my space. And he friended her. And of course, you know, he's a good looking young guy. She, of course, accepted him as a friend. And, um, and so we had all this incredible material that we we're going to introduce in court. But then I was realizing, oh my God, um, how am I going to introduce in this in court? And, how uh, is it going to look that my uh, law clerk befriended her and got this information? And so then it set off a firestorm of uh, conversation in the office about ethics and about um, this new digital platform and all the information that it could bring uh, to the trials and the new dimensions of it. But uh, there is no case law on the subject matter at the time, and no one had even considered this as an area to mine for such great defense information. And so um, I was one of the first to litigate it in courts. And back then, MySpace's lawyer lived in Washington, D.C., and he would come out and defend each time I would do a subpoena. But there's this 1986 uh, act called the Secured Communications Act uh, that he basically said we weren't entitled to anything. And of course, in Orange County with the judges there, uh, they were not going to uh, give our defendants anything they didn't have to. So I was routinely uh, rejected and the most of the subpoenas were quashed um, each time. And I took it to the courts of appeal and Supreme Court. But, you know, these are older uh, jurists who didn't even know what the internet was or the capabilities of it so they didn't really have the technical knowledge that everyone has now given the ubiquitous nature of uh, social media. So I didn't do very well in the courts of appeals, Supreme Court as well trying to bring this issue up back in 2008 but I wrote I think probably one of the first articles at least in the criminal defense magazine about the tremendous aspects of this uh, material, and then I've been lecturing ever since uh, through the state and nationally um, on uh, this material and how one gets introduced in court and the significance of the material. Uh, and so I've been the, one of the main spokesmen uh, trying to bring this to the forefront of uh, legal um, litigation and, and um hopefully, eventually, uh, establish law that is fair and equitable to everybody. So, so the, the important move 
there. Um, so as you cited, there was information on this particular uh, person's MySpace page that you could have access to via, you know, just one person in your office friending that person. But the, the sort of procedurally cleaner move would be to get that information directly from MySpace. And so that's why the fight is important um, for you to, to get it from the, the corporate entity holding the information, right? Well, so there's all sorts of chain and custody issues that are involved to make sure that it is the person that it says it is or that they say they are because, as you know, digital footprint can be changed and manipulated. There's all sorts of different problems with it. And then there's all the ethical considerations as well, too, and then legal, um, especially with the uh, Prop 115 and uh, its requirements that the defense investigators announce and state who they are as they're interviewing or talking with uh, prospective witnesses and describe, you know, define what they're doing. And so um, it brought up a whole bunch of issues, the least of which is how do you get this in court and make the argument to the jurors that it is what it says it is or it shows what it says it shows. And there's no better source to ensure the material is what it is supposed to be than the social media providers themselves because they're, you know, they're the ones that hold it and have it and preserve it and maintain it. So that's why we were looking uh, to them to provide it for us. The other thing, too, is, you know, I'm just an end user like everyone. I don't know how to do all that forensic computer work. I, you know, we hire experts for that. And the social media companies, um, that's what they do. That's their specialty. They know how their systems work. And so they are going to get us the most complete a picture of that profile uh, that we could obtain instead of the bits and pieces that we can try to download ourselves or we can have the provider, the user, uh, try to download themselves. It's never going to be as complete as if the social media providers provide it for us instead. Um, we could unpack this issue further in the context of, of the case here. So I'll lay out some sure. of the underlying facts quickly and then we can get into it, as I understand it, um, the two real parties in interest here, the original defendants, are charged with um, a gang-related homicide, um, and then they, and attempted homicide, and attempted homicide as well. And, and and so they seek social media records. I think of two parties: one, the deceased victim, and one, I think, the principal or maybe lone eyewitness for the prosecution. Is that right? What? Um, so, yeah. So it's the it's uh, the victim's girlfriend who made comments as well who has since take, taken the Fifth Amendment, uh, asserted the Fifth Amendment in one of the juvenile defendants' uh, juvenile proceedings that have already, that's already occurred. Okay. So it's the victim who died and his social media footprint and then his girlfriend's social media footprint where she makes statements of specifically who, who isn't involved, which includes our defendants, Hunter and Sullivan. So is it the sort of thing that perhaps on those social media platforms, discussions were had pertaining directly to the the, the, the charged crime? What, what exactly is being sought? So as uh, has been my experience with several other gang cases that I had, and which is the situation in this case, the fight began on the internet with the braggadocious of the two parties warring over social media about their um, 
their strengths as it relates to their gaming and otherwise. And so the, really the fight began on the internet and then it got uh, taken out of two on the streets. But the inception of the motivation uh, for either side all began on the internet. And that's what everyone is trying to piece together of what started it all off. And it's all uh, documented on social media footprints of uh, both parties. Now, as you, you foreshadowed with mentioning the previous case that you worked on, uh, that, that federal mm-hmm. law, Stored Communications Act from 1986, is, is wielded by the social media companies here against whom the subpoena is um, directed. Tell right. me a bit more about that, the SCA, that law, and exactly what it prescribes and, and proscribes, how it plays in here. And, and some exceptions to it, I understand that, uh, as we'll get kind of more into later, tend to favor the prosecution right. in cases like this? So uh, what's so daunting about it is that it was uh, passed in 1986 in what um, was the anticipation of the totality of the internet. But at that time, they were list services or, or uh, list boards that you would go to to have communications with on a given topic with a with a like-minded um, people who wanted to be a part of those forums. And the whole idea behind the SCA was to ensure that the government didn't um, move in and um, invade the privacy of and take or or review and analyze and use and utilize later in courts of law uh, private conversations on the Internet. Just like telephone providers, the Internet providers as their argument goes, and they're similar to the banking institution as well, too, with deposits that pass through their um, their companies. They are, you know, third parties or non-parties to a transaction, and, uh, um, and they only hold uh, uh, the communication or the telephone call or the banking um, transaction uh, that passes through their companies. And so, um, they so the government was concerned that uh, because uh, we as users use this third party or this non-party to do a particular transaction, that there'd be a loss of privacy because you're in essence giving it to a third party to review and see and look at. And under traditional Fourth Amendment law, you're in essence consenting or you are um you're giving up your privacy right to that uh, telephone call or that uh, um, banking transaction or your internet post because you're giving it to a non-party and they get to see it. And so what the SCA did in 1986 was basically state that the government is not allowed to, just because it's being transacted through a third party, the internet providers, doesn't mean that the user has given up any of their privacy rights and that the um, government can't just go in there and uh, subpoena those records uh, or, or or take those records, that, that they're going to have to use the Fourth Amendment and its principles through the search warrant process to obtain those, those uh, internet postings, just like they would have to do if they wanted to get bank records or just like they have to do if they want telephone calls with the wiretapping uh, process that exists. Um, and that's how it all began. Of course, um, 
Congress didn't ever think about the, the criminal defendants or, or other non-parties because they weren't. That wasn't their focus. That wasn't the intention of that act. It was to ensure that the government didn't intrude on this burgeoning new thing called the internet. And then, uh, of course, they never would have imagined or dreamed that uh, we would have the social networking platforms that we have today and the ubiquitousness of that. Uh, process, just as Justice Cuellar was saying in the Supreme Court arguments that there's 2 billion people on Facebook, 2 billion. Mm. So that's how that act began, and it was deficient, and it doesn't include exceptions for criminal defendants as it relates to subpoenas. There are some sections for uh, judicial order um, and that may be an uh, exception that the defendants could take a hold of, but the majority of the exceptions just apply to the government, and there's very specific search warrant processes that they have to follow. Okay, so the argument goes by the social media companies in the case here that that act uh, defends them from needing to to cede these records to uh, the defendant's subpoena, but the trial court does grant the uh, su- subpoena, correct? But And I understand that, that gets overturned at the Court yes. of Appeal, right? Well, so that's not exactly true. And um, as Facebook made um, evident at the oral arguments of the Supreme Court just Tuesday, they don't say it defends them from having to provide it. They say it prohibits them from doing it. And that their concern for the criminal liability, although the Facebook um, lawyer couldn't say which, which criminal, federal criminal statute would be violated. Uh, but it also gives them civil liability for evasion of privacy by the user if this information is provided without, uh, with not consistent with the SEA. Now, um, what makes this last Facebook case so amazing, and the Chief Justice uh, made reference to it as well, too, is that it's the only case I'm aware of where that the criminal defendant at the trial court level um, successfully argued with the trial judge to grant the subpoena deuces taken. Mm-hmm. That in 99% of the cases, Facebook has been successful in the trial court le- level to getting the subpoenas quashed. And they make that reference in their briefings as well, too, the, uh, the, you know, making the the argument that no other trial judge has done this because, and, and, you know, the Supreme Court should take note of that. I have never been successful in getting a trial court to, uh, grant the subpoena. And, uh, just recently I found, uh, one other lawyer in California was successful, but for some reason, um, it, uh, Facebook let it go through the cracks or, uh, there wasn't much to it, and so it wasn't a big deal. But this is the first instance uh, where I have seen that Facebook actually lost. And so that's why they immediately took a writ to the Court of Appeal uh, to uh, move uh, to overturn the trial court and uh, Judge Chan's decision to grant the subpoena. And then as for the Court of Appeal, they didn't necessarily overturn Judge Chan's order, um, but what they did say was that Judge Chan ruled too early to grant the subpoena deuces taken. And the Court of Appeals uh, decision, uh, which uh, it, it was the first decision
decision in the nation, and we're not just talking about the state of California, but in the nation, to state that the criminal defendants have a constitutional right to this information, and that uh, that constitutional right uh, um, trumps the federal statutory prohibition of providing that information. But what the Court of Appeals said is that under People versus Hammond, and then also, and we'll talk about it in a, a, a little bit, uh, the Ritchie versus Pennsylvania, which is the U.S. Supreme Court case, mm-hmm. that the criminal defendants in this case weren't entitled to that privileged uh, social media information until the middle of trial when it became evident that it was uh, material and relevant to the trial and needed to be uh, disclosed to be able to present to the jury. So, um, so it would be a misnomer to say that they overturned Judge Chan's decision. They really just um, effectively wanted it to be delayed until it was in the middle of trial. Sure. That, uh, that brings up the the question then, why such a bright dividing line that, that uh, the, the Court of Appeals finds important that uh, in this stage of the litigation prior to trial, um, when the sides are sorting out their cases, um, this sort of subpoena is, is not okay. The various constitutional protections don't guarantee a defendant um, his ability to, to get this sort of information. But then once trial starts and witnesses are being put on, the, the prosecution is putting on its case in chief, then this same request would be or could be at least vindicated by constitutional rights. What, what's the big difference between those two stages of litigation? Why does the do the constitutional rights here not kind of vest until later on? So the criminal offense made two arguments, well, they made several arguments, but the two main two, the two main constitutional arguments was that we have a Fifth Amendment due process right and the presentation of the evidence, uh, and we also have a Sixth Amendment right to uh, present, compel and present witnesses and evidence, as well as to have um, uh, effective assistance of counsel, prepared counsel uh, at trial. And what the Court of Appeal basically said that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, has never specifically held in a majority opinion that criminal defendants have a pretrial right to general discovery, including subpoena deuces taken. And that the closest case that talks about it is the plurality decision in Ritchie versus uh, State of Pennsylvania. And in that case, it involved juvenile records. And in that case, um, the juvenile law in Pennsylvania prohibited any information be provided to the defendants. And in that plurality decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said, just like uh, uh, Davis versus Alaska, that ultimately the defendants' Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights um, entitle it to ha- entitle them to have the information. But because it was a plurality, there wasn't any central agreed upon theory of uh, how that um, came to pass. And the California Supreme Court in People versus Hammond in 1997 basically uh, ruled in, in that instance, the psychiatric records of a, a rape victim um, were not um, compelled by the Fifth or Sixth Amendments um, pre-trial. Uh, and they came up with this new concept that they kind of stated derived from uh, the the Ritchie case 
that they were that it, it was a trial right, not a pretrial right, and so that's when the Sixth Amendment kicks in, and that trial right only exists when the trial is actually going on. So, in the Court of Appeal decision in this Facebook case, um, the um, Court of Appeal said that uh, yes, you have a constitutional right to this information because, as a trial judge found, it was relevant and material. But um, just as the privileged information of the psychiatric records, we are going to equate this as uh, that highest of standard of privilege for social media records. And so they basically said your psychiatric records were as important as your social media records or vice versa. And to us, we were a little bit incredulous about that because how can all these millions of cat videos really be the same level or receive the same level of uh, protection and and have the same level of privacy as someone's psych records. Even medical records uh, don't have that same privileged level, you know, level of privilege as psychiatric records. Uh, Medical records can be subpoenaed and there's um, little or no privilege uh, and just a general right of privacy to it. Uh, but psychiatric records, as you know, have a higher standard, uh, privileged standard. And what the Court of Appeal did is said that your social media records are at the same level of privileged protection on psych records, and you don't get them until trial. And so that's the distinction the Court of Appeal made. Now, imagine preparing for a case, getting all your witnesses in line, all your your evidence in line, and then having to pick a jury and do an opening statement without knowing whether you can get the salient, potentially exculpatory social media records in or not, because you don't exactly even know what they totally entail. And then only upon uh, uh, being in trial and showing, look, I need these records to uh, present these exculpatory records, should the trial judge then stop the trial, and you could get, in in this instance, they were talking uh, 10,000 pages of social media material in the middle of trial, and then having to take a month-long break with the jury while you're reviewing all this material. That's what Hammond has set up for the trial courts and the criminal uh, defendants and their attorneys. And the Court of Appeal basically put the social media material in that vaulted um, category that that's what we were going to have to do uh, in future criminal cases. It's unsustainable. It would add uh, great judicial waste. It's not judicially economical. And it's just inherently unfair to be in the middle of trial and have to stop and all the momentum, all the effort, and then have a jury sit on its heels for however long it takes for you to review the material and then to get them up to speed. I mean, the jurors have a life as well, too. So um, there's been grumblings by both sides, prosecution and defense, about Hammond and how it really just does not make practical sense. And I think the Supreme Court in the oil arguments were, were, were messaging that as well, too, that it was clear that they want to provide a very practical solution. And Facebook and its oral arguments uh, in relation to Justice Clare's uh, 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 questioning basically says it doesn't matter to them whether it's pretrial or trial. They don't really care. Yet the FCA, the act, it prohibits them from providing the information. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting how they fashion that decision and if they actually bring in Hammond 
and do something with Hannon, or if they sidestep it by saying it's not privileged, so they don't have to consider Hannon. Yeah, as you say, the social media company's view is that that dividing line between pretrial and trial is of no consequence, that the the act prohibits them from divulging these to either a way. defendant either way. Okay. Right, and it really doesn't, you know, they if they have to provide the information, it doesn't matter for them the timing, you know, uh, they, they can do it, they can, they can easily do it, so, anytime, so. I want to pack one point from the, the Court of Appeals ruling. In the context of the, the pre-trial the discovery stage, they, you know, they held that the specific constitutional protections don't don't prevail and, and guarantee this sort of information to defendants. Uh, and part of the reason they reason that was because there's no, as they put it, a general constitutional right to pretrial discovery. Um, what what exactly right. is a, a general constitutional right, and why is you know sort of that important to the court of appeals there? If you're sort of arguing that these specific constitutional rights are the ones that that matter. So I don't think that they said there is no general right. But basically, what they said is there's been no. Um, recognized general right. It doesn't mean that that can't be developed in the future. And in fact, um, in another case of mine, the Magellan case, uh, the, the Sixth District Court of Appeal did state we have a state due process right to um, pretrial discovery as it relates to um, information concerning the suppression motion uh, during the preliminary hearing. And so it's interesting, we're starting to develop a state due process right board, but because it was a federal um, statute that we were dealing with, we have to deal with the federal constitution, which under the supremacy clause is the only thing that would trump a federal statute. So our state due process right to pretrial discovery in the Magellan case wouldn't um, be sufficient enough to overturn or, or look past the federal uh, act that would, in essence, prohibit this kind of communication to be provided by SDT. And so what the Court of Appeals said, there's been no U.S. Supreme Court recognized right of pretrial discovery. And but that I don't think they ever said that there isn't one or there couldn't ever be. They just said there hasn't been one recognized yet. And the the Ritchie versus uh, Pennsylvania case, the, the Supreme Court came close to saying that, but they didn't. They didn't have the totality of the votes to actually state and hold that. And then that's always been a favorite argument by the prosecution and um, several conservative courts of appeal to inhibit our abilities. And the Supreme Court, to some extent, back in the you know, back in the day, pre pre Hammond, to uh, inhibit our abilities to uh, get this type of discovery pre-trial, it just makes much 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 more sense. It's just much more practical, even if it's thirty days out, to have pre-trial information so that everyone is on the same page about what kind of discovery that they have before trial. You know, in the civil context. Everyone knows what the discovery is well before trial. So the trial itself, there's really no pulled punches, but it's only in the criminal field where um, there's this uh, jockeying of who gets discovery when and how. And it really does create uh, a level playing field and then a, a playing field that is um, fraught with the problems uh, as it moves forward that really doesn't need to be there. And that to us was an argument against Hammond because it just overly complicates something that's difficult anyways. And trial judges are 
smart enough and intelligent enough and know the case enough, especially close to trial, to be able to make those relevancy and materiality decisions ahead of time, given the knowledge that they've had with the cases. You know, we, we've discussed the exceptions to the Stored Communications Act, one of which tends to allow, I guess, as you said, with a, a warrant, the prosecution to obtain the sort of information sought here by the defendants. Um, right. in, in your amicus brief, you contend, you know, that's a pretty unfair asymmetry and a pretty right. patent one. Um, I think that the Court of Appeals referenced that as perhaps in, in a way that undercuts um, the real party's argument namely saying that if the prosecution does have access by, by way of this exception, the defense could obtain sort of derivatively the information the prosecutions have that could be useful to defendants by ways of you know Brady motions or things like that. I, I take it you do not think that's an adequate protection for defense? <laughs> well, and I think the Supreme Court and what they were saying, especially the Chief Justice as well too, and then Justice Corrigan um, referenced it as well, um, it's not a good argument because um, the the DAs under or the law enforcement under the, the SCA do have the warrant process. And I, w- I want to also tell you, you know, Facebook and these social media companies have the playbook that they it's a literally written playbook about how you properly subpoena. And then they throw uh, uh, these lectures uh, and bring in law enforcement from all over the country and they rent out a big hall in Long Beach and they teach the officers how to do it. And they provide all this training and, and, and teaching and materials to law enforcement to make sure that they can have access to these um, uh, information by search warrants as quick and as fast as possible. But our argument is under the due process clause and under the greatest one of the greatest cases ever decided, at least for criminal defense attorneys, is uh, Oregon versus Warriors, so Warrior versus Oregon, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case that basically said what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And in that case, there was a specific discovery process that the um, the law enforcement could take advantage of, but the, the defense couldn't. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, you can't do that. If you're going to give it to one side, you got to give it to the other side as well, too, because it creates the fairness and equity in the situation. And what is oftentimes the prosecution misses, and some courts uh, miss as well, too, is that if you allow the one side to have um, access to materials and you don't allow the other side. And then you say, well, you can get it from that one side if you're really nice to them and you ask them in a really nice way. It inherently creates an environment of inequality and you inherently, it's, it, and it's sub, uh, uh, subconsciously picked up by the jury and it's subconsciously picked up into the proceedings if there is this an inherent imbalance uh, where one side gets uh, um, an advantage that the other doesn't get to have. And, um, you know, that's just not American either. You know, we're all about the level playing field. You know, I don't mind you, uh, you know, limiting this or requiring me to do that, but it's just not fair if the other side gets to do it and I don't get to do it. And in our criminal justice system, in the adversarial system, it is designed to be co-equal so that there's a co-equal adversarial ability to really meet out the issues for the trier of fact to be able to make a, a good decision based upon sound arguments where both sides had the full equal ability to develop and present their arguments. 
And so it's really specious when Facebook says, well, they can just get it from the DAs. We're not beholden to the DAs, and our interests are different than the DAs. And our view of the evidence and what we think is important, especially with what we know and that we're not allowed to tell them through attorney-client privilege or otherwise or work product, we know what we're looking for, and they don't always know what they're looking for for us. They know what they're looking for for them to make their case, but they don't know what we're looking for to make our case. With additionally the other information, we know that we're not allowed to tell them. And, and so I don't want to uh, have to go to the DA. And, and that's the other problem. I'm under a sworn duty. Uh, uh, I could lose my bar card if I relay attorney-client privilege information, and how else am I supposed to help the DAs write the probable cause statement for the search warrant, but to give up pertinent privileged information uh, that uh, is the link in the chain to help uh, convict my client. It's just not right. And um, then there's a whole body of case law that the Supreme Court, that they've written, that they, they have to get by, that states that the DAs are not our locklers. They do not have to do our jobs and that we have equal access to be able to get that information if we want. And that uh, if we don't, then uh, the defendant suffers at the peril of ineffective assistance of counsel, but not at ineffective assistance of uh, the prosecution. As for the Brady claim, as the Chief Justice um, specifically stated, that's usually after fact, after thousands and thousands of dollars and hours and time are spent, and it comes to light that there's this information that they should have provided. Um, and, you know, Brady has been a perpetual fight between the DAs and the, pro- and, the, and the defense attorneys forever, and I guarantee you they do not know what is relevant material for my case. And they shouldn't have to be put into position of making that determination. And that's what Facebook wants them to do. And I guarantee you, they're, you know, they're they're not going to want to have our ribbing when we tell them like law clerks to go get the search warrant uh, for this information, that information, because we want it, right? They're not going to do that. And they shouldn't have to do that. And it's just not professional. And it doesn't, lend the um, the authenticity of a fair and neutral and balanced um, playing field where both sides have equal access to um, get the information they need to present their arguments in the adversarial system that we have in America. You know, of a couple arguments that your amicus brief particularly stressed, uh, one mm-hmm. um, focuses on the idea that supremacy clause arguments raised by the um, social media companies along the lines of, you know, hey, this Stored Communications Act, this federal law would trump a state court's ability to, you know, reach these records um, is sort of an obfuscation because what you're asking the court to do is, is uh, you know, reckon with federal constitutional protections. Um, and that's something a state court has the perfect capacity to do. I, I think it was a point touched on at argument uh, and also sort of related to it that maybe though a state court has the you know, the ability to rule on federal constitutional claims and even break new ground there, that it, it might tend to wait for the, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court to take the first step in that direction. As you said, you know, there's no a majority opinion vouchsafing this sort of right for defendants. And so maybe the, the state Supreme Court would be a bit, bit hesitant recognizing it. Um, can you just unpack right. that, that a bit for me? Well, so 
um, I was always perplexed um, early in my litigation on this subject matter when I came to realize that I'm asking this little state court trial judge to rule this big federal statute unconstitutional on federal constitutional grounds and what a huge decision that would be by a you know a child court judge in you know monterey county little monterey county uh, uh to make and so i looked deeply into california law uh, and it wasn't until this amicus that i wrote that i finally found uh, the case law that supported my argument because i i knew you know, from my constitutional law class days that it was probably potentially possible that any trial judge in any court in the land could render a decision on a federal constitution or federal statute or state constitution or state statute as it related to their particular jurisdiction and the cases and controversy before their jurisdiction. And so, um, but that, you know, to think of it and have the intuition that it exists there and to actually find case law that supports that argument is a far chasm. It was a, it was a big uh, divide to find. And so I searched and searched and searched, and I did find the case that basically supports the position that uh, California courts can rule on federal constitutional grounds to overturn a federal statute. And this case came out of the uh, Second World War and some uh, a pricing a federal statute talking about pricing of uh, uh, materials during during the war. And there was a, a, a California Supreme Court that overruled this federal statute and federal constitutional grounds, uh, staking the area to be able to make that claim in the future. Now, I can't tell you that I found many more decisions like that or other jurisdictions in other states that have done that as well. Um, but uh, there is a case law that permits, and that's what I argued in my brief. Now, I think you are correct. And it's maybe something that the Court of Appeal didn't heed as much as they should have given the Supreme Court's questioning uh, and what appears to be their position. Um, I think you are correct that I think the Supreme Court in this instance is um, very reluctant to stake that claim and make that um, decision without giving the federal government and the federal uh, courts the chance first of making that determination and only with their backs truly against the wall would maybe the California Supreme Court make that rare, rare decision of uh, overturning a federal statute on federal constitutional grounds in the jurisdiction of the California. So uh, the problem is the U.S. Congress uh, hasn't acted since 1986 to enhance and to bring and modernize the SCA. They tried in 2014, but that was at the height of the Obama uh, barricade by the Republicans in the, in the legislature. And um that it never got past committee. And so we're dealing with a you know, a, a statute from the Stone Age as it relates to our current position with social media and its ubiquitous across the country. Um, and and so 
it's interesting what the Supreme Court's going to do. And I think they're going to be very um, prudent and very respectful. And I think they're going to make a statutory determination. And it, that may force the hands of the federal courts in the future. I think the Supreme Court is very aware that this is the first case and this is the only case in the country that has a has the facts in a posture um, that involves the criminal defendants being successful in the trial court and getting the subpoena granted. And so um, it'll be really fascinating to see uh, the statutory argument I think the Supreme Court is going to make in this instance and uh, of how they're going to provide the defendant with information because I think they're also acutely aware that it's unfair that the prosecution can get it. And I also think that they don't want us to have to go through the prosecution, that we should have our independent uh, investigative um, abilities, as is required under the state bar and by case law, that we independently investigate uh, to the best of our abilities. And I can tell you, Justice Corrigan is very sensitive to that. In my Garcia case to the Supreme Court, she was very acutely aware, and it was very important to her, that the um, criminal defense attorneys had their own independence and co-equal ability to obtain discuss uh, discovery that is pertinent to what they think the defense is, not have to be beholden to the prosecution. So um, I think you're right. The Supreme Court's not going to make the constitutional argument they're going to make a, a statutory interpretation instead um one other point from your amicus brief the the supreme court will still have to to reckon with a piece of state precedent that the that hammond case that, that we've talked about um when it you know were it to reach a decision favorable for the real parties and interest here because there hammond as you said barred pretrial uh, subpoenaing of psychiatric records um you said that that case should not um, trouble the Supreme Court too much, either because social media records are, are shouldn't be treated as pri- as privileged as those types of records, or because the case should be sort of revisited altogether. Why why, right. why should that not be an obstacle for well, the Supreme Court? Well, so I, you know, obviously the Supreme Court because they're very aware of stare decisis and precedent. They're not going to overturn something they don't have to, right? And so I can see a path in this case where they don't have to revisit Hammond. By basically saying, and I think that was the general tenor of all the justices, um, even the pro tem that sat, that uh, I, they don't think the social uh, media material is of privileged stature, not the privileged stature of psychiatric records. So it's easy for them to, to argue or say or to hold that um, the social media material is not privileged information. And so we don't have to deal with Hammond and whether to decide it pre or, you know, whether it has to be um, produced at trial or not. We're saying it's not privileged, that it's just regular discovery from a non-party or a third party, and that the regular 1326 proceedings can, under the subpoena ducis tecum, can take uh, act, uh, act, and it can happen pre-trial. So I'm pretty sure that that's what they're going to say, and they're not going to, uh, they're not going to have to even deal with him if they make the decision that way. Okay, then just uh, last one to conclude. It sounds like you you have some sense, uh, decent ideas about which way the court might be might be pointing. I guess just sum up for me how you think the, the arguments went and which way you think the court might be heading on on this case. 
So I'm pretty sure that they're going to say that you're entitled to have social media material pretrial, that you have to do it through the 1326 process, that it is a process where the trial judge should pay particular importance uh, to uh, the in-camera review to determine whether it's relevant and material to ensure the general privacy considerations under the California Constitution and the U.S. Constitution that I think Justice Corrigan spoke to as well, too, during oral arguments, and that the judge is in a good position and trial judge is in a good position to be able to do that and make those important decisions, just like he would have done pre-filing with a search warrant request by the law enforcement who are wanting the same material, right? It's really the same proceeding. And a search warrant isn't really any different in operation than a, uh, a subpoena deuces taken. And they really are the same probable cause standards of material and relevancy to the case. Uh, just search warrants are done for the government pre-filing and subpoena this is taken are done post-filing uh, but pre-trial uh, with the courts and you know the popular misconception is that uh, if we subpoena documents they go to the defense attorney right to their hands it doesn't it's the court's records it's the court's documents and that they have they are the ones that hold it and are responsible for it so it'll be through the court proceedings that uh, a judge knowledgeable in the case will be able to render a good decision about. Now, I am less certain about how they're going to do the statutory interpretation to make it um, viable under the SCA. And so they're going to interpret the um, materials. They're going to interpret uh, the SCA into determining what we are and aren't entitled to get under the federal uh, statutory laws, and they're not going to render a constitutional decision. Now, I was talking to some of the attorneys afterwards, and a radical thought, uh, especially after Justice Clare's uh, questioning about the whole situation, is would they say that any time you post to a social media um, provider, whether you've set your privacy proceedings to as private as you can make them or not, anytime you post to them, you are by de facto publicly publishing them. You're, they're not really private. And there was a whole discussion of what is and isn't uh, private. And, you know, the, uh, the justice brought up you know, are 2 billion members and posting to Facebook with 2 billion members, is that really a private post? And of course, the Facebook had to make the ludicrous argument that it's private and that even if it's to 2,000, 2 billion people, it's private. And all the justices kind of had a cockeyed face to that because they thought that that's a little incredulous to say. And so it could be the radical decision that if you post to social media, no matter what settings you have, you are actually um, posting to the public and you're giving consent um, by default by doing that. And so that all social media information is fair game. That's a pretty radical thought if they do that, but it's potentially um, consistent with what they were asking during questioning. I think it would be incredible if that was the uh, ruling and then it would really force the hands of the Congress and of uh, the federal courts to maybe have to rule something independent from that. Um, but, uh, you know, it remains to be seen uh, from there uh, if it's going to be something different or less than that.
Yeah, California Supreme Court never too shy for making a ruling that would uh, cause some reaction in the federal courts or in Congress. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll see which way this goes uh, pretty soon. Uh, right now, we'll leave it right. there. Don, Don Landis, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And with that, our program for March 9th, 2018 is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.